The topic for this evening's review is compassion. Practice of compassion is integral to Buddhism and actually it's the core of all the uh, faith traditions. The way it's manifested primarily, fundamentally, in the uh, Buddhist world is through the Four Noble Truths. Perhaps you haven't realized that before. Um, the first Noble Truth is Dukkha. Uh, dukkha is usually translated as suffering. I prefer translated as distress and confusion. and I'll be elaborating on that a little bit later. That certainly introduces the topic of uh, compassion, doesn't it? Second Noble Truth is um, the cause of dukkha, which is craving and clinging. Uh, craving is related to the distress function of dukkha and clinging to the uh, confusion part. The third noble truth is liberation from dukkha. And that's attainable. Now, in the fundamental level in Buddhism, that liberation is total liberation, the experience of nirvana, the unconditioned. Uh, my perspective on that is that every time we can redirect the energy of our attention away from distress and confusion and back to some kind of balance, of, of, of compassion and kindness and clarity, um, that's liberation. And the fourth noble truth is what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, which are the principles and practices that are um, developed to realize liberation from dukkha. Um, the word karuna is the representative of dukkha in both the Theravadan Pali uh, terms but also the Sanskrit Mahayana terms. And fundamentally the practice involves a clear uh, awareness of um, the experience of dukkha personally and by inference terms of another person's experience or another being's experience. I have found myself having compassion for ants uh, and uh, roaches and other uh, simple creatures like that. They're trying to get along, you know, they're trying to keep it going. Um, so, Part of what I enjoy about this era, my lifetime, studying Buddhism, is the strong intersection between uh, this um, thousands of years old um, discovery, insight about how the mind works and contemporary psychological and neuroscientific research. So there's actually been a lot of research on where compassion operates in the brain. There's a part of the brain that's situated just above the ears on the lining between the, the uh, two hemispheres that we call the cerebral cortex, the right and left hemispheres. On the inner lining of that, what's called the insular cortex. In the front part of the insular cortex is the anterior insular cortex. And that is where the data, if you will, the stimulation coming from the body, the uh, organs, the muscles, so forth and so on, uh, is being uh, 
received and transmitted to the emotional center of the brain, which is located right next to it, clusters of neurons called the amygdala and the hippocampus. And those areas are primarily responsible for our feelings, our emotions. So the insular cortex is kind of the passageway for that. Now, another function of the insular cortex has to do with um, the other, other people, other beings. So there's uh, an intersection there between information that's being processed from our own internal experience, embodied experience, and what we infer from someone else's experience, visually, um, in terms of sound, um, physical contact, so forth and so on here, uh, you know, all those things. Um, this is what we call empathy. You've heard me say many times, human beings are hardwired for empathy. Human beings have been social animals as long as we've been human beings, even before then. So, in order for us to function socially, we have to interact with others. Our very sense of being in the world depends on that. So we are empathetic creatures by nature. So we are vibing off each other all the time in many ways that we don't even acknowledge, that we're not consciously aware of. And this is where the the practice of mindfulness and investigation uh, is important. Because like I said, all this information is coming in from you know down inside the body, but also through the visual process, the auditory process, and so forth and so on. So all this information is coming in. A lot of it is not really attended to. We're not really aware of it. But it affects us. We are affected by facial expressions. There's been some really interesting research done that the interactions between a primary caregiver and an infant. Uh, what they did with this experiment, this many years ago, it's been repeated many, many times. Uh, they put cameras behind the caregiver, usually the mother, um, which would focus on the infant's face, behind the infant, which would focus on the mother's face, and on one side that would catch them in profile, and recorded their interactions. And they discovered that there are um, either quite obvious or rather subtle exchanges going back and forth, a kind of a mimicry going back and forth. If a, a child starts to smile a little bit, the mother starts to smile. Or the mother starts to smile, the child starts to smile. If the mother looks distressed, the child looks distressed and vice versa. This is empathy in action. So it's an essential part of our humanness and our social life. Um, so what does that mean? What that means is that all of our thoughts, either when we're directly interacting with someone or we're thinking about someone, are affected by these feelings and uh, our interpretation of these feelings and the behavior that we uh, put into play in response to that. It's just how we live. Now, Buddhism puts a great emphasis on investigating how this process unfolds. The arising of a moment of self-organization. To notice that. And the more the mind is well-trained to be presently aware, which is what mindfulness is, and to be increasingly internally sensitized. Uh, that's, that's how we train. One of the things that is known from contemporary neuroscientific research is that the function, the, the interconnectedness between the anterior insular cortex and the... Uh, limbic system, which is where the amygdala and the hippocampus are, um, is made stronger. 
more potent, more aware, right? more consciously aware. So this is something that happens as a result of our mindfulness breathing meditation training. Very useful. So, having said that, what Buddhism brings to the mix is um, more clarity and less impulsive reactivity in terms of investigating this kind of interaction between the raw sensations that we might be experiencing in that part of the brain and the interpretations that create a sense of self relative to that. This is how we live. Um, the capacity for compassion requires an effective interaction between mindfulness, investigation, and loving-kindness. Loving-kindness is uh, an intentional organizing of one's thoughts and feelings and behaviors that are, that are uh, the goal is to manifest kindness. Kindness for one's own experience and kindness for the experience of other sentient beings. So, when we think about compassion, it's, it's a subset of the overarching function of loving-kindness. The other functions of loving-kindness are um, generosity or, or what's called sympathetic joy and uh, equanimity, which is uh, the ability to interact with someone in ways that are not impulsively reactive and inclined toward it's called unwholesomeness. In other words, the, the function of uh, loving kindness is thwarted or even um, made um, perverse or damaging. So that brings to uh, our attention what are called the far enemies and the near enemies of uh, compassion. The far enemy of compassion is harshness and cruelty. Now, once again, what we're talking about here is a process that's investigating your own immediate internal response to a stimulus that is uh, unpleasant, perhaps harshly so, being injured, uh, suffering a loss, being sick, um, so forth and so on. So that, that's going on. There might also be occurring at the same time an awareness of someone else's uh, experience of harshness. Now we've, uh, I've been watching the news and uh, noting that uh, Thousands of people are being killed in Ukraine now. Whether they're Ukrainians or Russians, there are thousands of people being killed right now. And some part of me, some part of all of us, is affected by that. When we watch the nightly news and we see that you know, somebody's been um, injured in an accident or there's been a crime committed, we're affected by that because we're empathetic beings. That's how we roll, so to speak. So, um, harshness is a fact of nature. Cruelty is in the realm of human behavior. Once again, warfare is cruel. Animals generally are not cruel. I mean, you might argue that when a cat teases a mouse, that's cruel. But fundamentally, animals, you know, destroy other beings because they're hungry or they need to protect themselves. Human beings do do those sorts of things um, for power and control and uh, so forth and so on. So, the far enemy of compassion, 
harshness and cruelty. Now, the near enemy of compassion is pity. And this is often confusing for people. When you're empathizing with someone and you see that they're in a bad place, so to speak, uh, someone begging on the street, for example, the interaction with that person automatically involves empathy. That could be me. It may be stuffed way, way back in your subconscious, but it's there. Um, pity creates a barrier, a, a hierarchy. You poor thing. One of the basic tenets of Buddhism, and this is also true of the other faith traditions, is that uh, we're all in this together. In Buddhism, it's called interdependence or interbeing. Thich Nhat Hanh was very well known for advocating this understanding. So when we're um, empathizing with someone else's misfortune and we put them down, so to speak, that creates a sense of disconnection. It denies the universality of our humanity. An example of that, uh, one of my teachers, Matt Flickstein, um, was riding down through New York City with one of his teachers. And there was a beggar on the street, on the sidewalk. And uh, the teacher said to Matt, what would be the skillful, compassionate behavior in that regard? So Matt said, well, give that person money for food. And the master said, well, yeah, but the better choice would be to share food with that person. That, to me, kind of illustrates the difference between pity, which has a kind of separation characteristic to it and joining with someone, sharing a meal with that person. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean if, if I encounter someone who's, who's ill, I should deliberately become ill, right? doesn't mean that at all. What we're talking about is feelings, that we can empathize with someone else's misfortune or illness or injury or loss in ways that is reflected by something that's said in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. There but for the grace of God go I. Or from a Buddhist perspective, there but for the grace of karma go I. Right? So uh, that's something important to consider in regard to the issue of the uh, far enemy and the near enemy. The way we regulate our empathy, I mentioned this earlier, I want to talk about it um, more now, involves the cultivation and activation of three or what are called the seven awakening factors. Um, mindfulness, which is present moment awareness. Investigation of mental phenomena which means being aware of how meaning-making is occurring in your immediate awareness. How the, your sense of self, or what I call the selfing story, is forming. And being alert to whether it's headed in a direction that is unwholesome, far enemy or near enemy in this case, regarding compassion, or wholesome. Then another of the awakening factors, which is the energy awakening factor, manifested as what's called uh, right effort, is put into play. 
And right effort basically means redirecting the, the flow of attention, the energy of attention, away from the unwholesome, you know, emerging unwholesome selfing story toward a wholesome uh, selfing story. One that uh, shows up in a different way, behaves in a different way. That is kind, generous, uh, willing to go out of one's way to be supportive and helpful when someone's in trouble, when someone's hurt. And sometimes that just simply means being willing to listen to somebody. Other times it might mean dedicating your whole life to that. You know, the example that comes to mind for me, and I've talked about this often, is the, the woman we call Mother Teresa, who is now, I believe, become Saint Teresa who spent all, almost all of her adult life uh, practicing compassion in the um, slums of India. Right? Really, really difficult circumstances. My reading about compassion, my meditation practice, when I, when I started out practicing mindfulness meditation, I was a professional artist. There's no harm done with that, right? It wasn't hurting anybody, but I wasn't making a very good living at it either, for that matter, to be honest. So I changed careers. I went to graduate school and became a psychotherapist. So I have been practicing professionally being compassionate for over 30 years. That was a conscious choice on my part. Part of my spirituality is to be compassionate. And I'm not suggesting that you all do that. It's just what occurred to me. And I realized part of my own recovery uh, from my dependence on marijuana, I realized, you know, I can help people. I'm a good listener good student, I'm a good uh, talker, so I can do this, and I did it, and I did it well, and helped a lot of people, so find ways to be compassionate, to be kind to someone, this brings to mind someone I've talked about many times, used to come here, in this very room, meditate, who worked at a defense contractor complex here in Orlando and that defense contractor um, that particular facility made cruise missiles that were being used in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places like that and that violates the the uh, Buddhist principle of non-harming and she was kind of distressed about that what's she going to do about it she had to have a job. She had to pay her bills. So what I suggested to her was she might want to consider changing careers, not willy-nilly, you know, quitting her job and casting herself out into the, the wild. But while she was working there, be kind and compassionate for her coworkers. Right? That's something that she could do. So, um, how do we do this? Well, I talk about mindfulness. What we want to do is to be able to clearly recognize our own immediate experience of distress and confusion. Now, let me be a little bit clear about distress and confusion. Distress is emotional upset. It could be emotional upset because you want something. It could be emotional upset because you don't want something. When I say don't want something, I mean you don't want to be in pain. You don't want to lose something, um, so forth and so on. Um, so 
we want to be aware of the reactivity of distress, the kind of impulsive behavior. The mind lurches toward or away from something that's being created in the mind. Um, that's uh, creating a self that is afflicted by um, distress and confusion. What's the confusion part? I've talked about this before. We're all conditioned toward realizing a certain kind of ideal self. To be a good citizen or a good uh, partner or a good worker, um, a good family member. And what it means to be good is defined circumstantially. It's also defined um, in terms of how we are conditioned. Circumstances, it's obvious. You know, when you're confronted with something that is pleasant, that's a circumstance. But how you respond to it is cultural. Same is true with something that's unpleasant. I've worked with couples who would, one of them would harp on the other one, tease that person or uh, be criticizing them. Um, and the other person was upset. So I asked them, talk about how you were raised. Well, the person who was the teaser or the criticizer was raised in a family where that's how you knew you were family. People teased each other. People criticized each other. So that became, in a sense, the language of belonging, the language of love. It was not kind. It was not compassionate. But it was prevalent. It had an impact on people. And it stays with you. So... You're not necessarily going to tease or criticize someone who's just an acquaintance. You could. But when you start to develop a sense of family, a sense of committed a domestic relationship, then those old rules come into play. Right? This is how we know we're family because I'm criticizing you and you're feeling awful. Now, oddly enough, the other person might have been attracted to being criticized because they were criticized often in their family of origin. It was normal for them to feel less than or offended or um, confused or something like that because of the way they were being treated. So there's this unholy interdependence between these two uh, people that both of them are dissatisfied that's the confusion part. It's also the stress part, right? So part of what we're doing with this practice is paying attention, investigating how we are being conditioned in a moment, a circumstance, to respond to a situation. Uh, for example, um, you see someone who's a beggar on the street. If your conditioning is, you know, ultimate independence and self-reliance, that person needs to get their act together. They need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And if I give them any money, they're probably just going to use it on drugs. Right? Um, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But they're suffering. They're distressed and they're confused. What are you going to do about it? Um, so... What we do about it, obviously, is circumstantial. Uh, my wife and I, I, this year, first time ever in my life, I joined a religious organization, the Unitarian Universalist Congregation out near the University of Central Florida. And every Sunday when my wife and I are driving out there, there's a woman who's on the corner of um, Aloma and... Howell Branch Road. We've been doing this for over a year. We give her $5. She does not look like a druggie to me. She looks like a person who has some kind of mental impairment. I, um, 
feels good to do that. feels good to help her out. And she's gotten involved in social work with a social worker and, and uh, has gotten some, gotten some breaks right, out of compassion. So that's something that would be useful to think about as you, as you move forward through your life. Um, what would be the kindest thing to do here without pity? Um, so, we want to be clearly aware of how the mind is making meaning out of an empathic uh, response to a situation. Because remember, we're hardwired for empathy. It's going to be with us all of our days. What do we do with it? Well, we pay attention. So when you aim your attention at the beginning of the in-breath and sustain that awareness for the duration of the in-breath, and then you repeat that procedure for the out-breath, you are training yourself, you're, you're training the anterior insular cortex, right? Because sensation of breathing is an internal physical sensation. And that stimulation from the upper lip and the nostrils is being processed through the, um, that part of your brain. Now, what's interesting about the sensation of breathing is that it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. There's no suffering in the breath. I had a recent conversation with, I facilitated a, a study group, and one of the conversations during the study group last weekend, uh, and I've talked about this before in other circumstances, people say it's so hard to breathe, uh, to practice mindfulness of breathing. It's so hard to practice mindfulness of breathing. And what I point out is, when you're paying attention to the sensation of breathing, that's not hard. What's hard is the craving and clinging that pulls you away from it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you really pay attention to that. That's what's hard. It's the distractions, the urgency, the preoccupation. But in order to pay attention to the breath, you have to decide to do it, and there's no craving and clinging there. Sensation is neutral. There's no storyline with it. Or minimally, this is the in-breath, this is the out-breath. But that doesn't particularly you know, stir up any strong feelings or confusion. It is what it is. It's very simple and straightforward. So you're establishing a kind of balanced awareness. Now, the more you do that with your meditation practice, the more you're creating uh, what, what we call samadhi pasadhi. Samadhi is... A stability of attention. Your attention is not wobbling back and forth from one craving and clinging uh, function to another. And paucity is tranquility. There's quietness, there's calmness, there's peacefulness. Right? That in uh, Theravadan tradition is called access concentration. It basically means that the mind is not at that moment, um, preoccupied by craving and clinging. It's balanced, it's clear, um, it's peaceful. Then, um, that kind of uh, awareness allows you to be more internally aware. Because as you watch the breath, the breath gets sensations can become more vivid the more you actually investigate them. So you are strengthening the introspective function of the anterior um, insular cortex. Right? Well, every time we have a feeling, it does something in the body. It changes your breathing pattern, creates muscle tension, uh, surges of energy, so forth and so on. Sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're pretty obvious. So the more you're aware of the subtleties involved with breathing, the more um, the interior insular cortex is set up to notice other sensations in the body with more clarity. And hopefully a, a, a bit more objectivity. When you pay attention to the breath, the simplicity of it, you also become more clearly aware 
of the emergence of some kind of selfing story. And you can see it for what it is. Right? One of the things I heard, urge people to do is when you practice, realize what you're doing is you're cultivating a process. Content is incidental. It's circumstantial. It could be an itch, could be a memory, could be planning for something, um, whatever. That is content. But what we want to do is be clearly aware of the process that starts to form a self around that content, that stimulation. So, um, you develop this axis concentration and from that perspective you can notice how the selfing process forms. Now, let's put that in the context of empathy. You're watching the breath and a memory comes up. And that memory might be organized around an unpleasant interpersonal experience you had with a co-worker who seemed to be saying something that was overly critical of your performance or was gossiping and you heard about it, right? So what pops up in your mind? Aversion and ill will. One of the hindrances. The mind wants to repel that experience and gets angry because, you know, people shouldn't do that. Once again, that's the ideal, right? People shouldn't gossip. People shouldn't be uh, cruel in their behavior and their comments. So, the empathy has gotten uh, overstimulated and fallen into um, harshness and cruelty. And one of the things that I suggest to people in that kind of situation, first thing you do is you say to yourself, I'm witnessing suffering here. What does that mean? Well, first of all, your own suffering, your own distress and confusion. Because you're more internally aware and less reactive, you're able to observe how it's happening, how it's happening in terms of your body, how it's happening in terms of your thoughts and your emotions. So you can notice that um, as it's occurring and then make better choices about responding to it. So the first thing you do when you practice in compassion, you have to check your own empathic attunement to the other person. And then you're witnessing suffering, you realize that that person is acting out of their own distress and confusion. Gossiping is hurtful. It's not socially um, proactive. It does not promote social harmony. It promotes distrust and resentment. It also perhaps suggest that this person has their own insecurities and they're trying to deflect that onto another person. They might feel inadequate about their own skills at work and redirect everyone's attention to the supposed unskillness of you so that people will be contemptuous of you rather than contemptuous of them. This happens too, right? So that's harshness and cruelty. Or you might noticing this other person is suffering, you slide into pity. Right? The whole notion of, oh, you poor thing. You know, there's an old Southern saying, when somebody does something stupid, bless her heart, that poor thing. Right? And uh, it's really, bless her heart is a kind of a dig. It's a little contemptuous. Uh, so, uh, then you've fallen into pity. But then, you know what? There probably are times when you have been cruel in your criticism of another person or have gossiped, right? Well, so it's a two-way street. So with this practice, this is how you work with, with compassion. You, you first of all have to notice um, um, how you are being affected by some kind of stimulus, 
internal or external or both, and then figure out how you are going to quote with it, deal with it. Um, okay, so I've described how that can work, but I also want to talk about some of the ways that um, others have described compassion. Here's a quote from an article that was uh, published in 1997 in the Buddhist Publication Society titled Detachment and Compassion in Early Buddhism. It's by Elizabeth Harris. At least three stands of meaning in the term compassion can be detected in texts. Prerequisite for a just and harmonious society, an essential attitude for progress along the path towards wisdom, and deliberative action within society of those who have become enlightened or are sincerely following the path towards it. All these strands need to be looked at if the term is to be understood and if those who accuse Buddhist compassion of being too passive are to be answered correctly. The Buddha's teachings about statecraft and government also embody compassion as a guiding principle. The Chakabada uh, Siyananda Sutta describes a state in which the king ignores his religious advisors does not give wealth to the poor. Poverty becomes widespread and in its wake follow theft, murder, immorality in various forms and communal breakdown. The culmination is a sword period, in quotes, in which men and women look upon one another as animals and cut one another with swords. In this sutta, lack of compassion for the poor leads to the disintegration of society. Lack of social and economic justice leads to disaster. In contrast, the ideal Buddhist model for society, as deduced from the text, would be one in which exploitation in any part of its structure is not acted on, is not valued. Now, here's something from a book called Altered Traits, written by Daniel Goleman and Richie Davidson. Richie Davidson has been a, uh, a leader in the use of uh, very sophisticated uh, machinery to understand what's going on in the brain as we are having certain experiences. For example, empathy. And his comments on the practice of uh, compassion. Compassion meditation shows stronger benefits from the get-go. As few as seven total hours over the course of two weeks leads to increased connectivity in circuits important for empathy and positive feelings, strong enough to show up outside the meditation state per se. This is the first sign of a state morphing into a trait. Although these effects likely will not last without daily practice, but the fact that they appear outside the formal meditation state itself may reflect our innate wiring for basic goodness. Loving-kindness and compassion practice over the long term enhances neural resonance with another person's suffering, along with concern and a greater likelihood of actually helping. Attention, too, strengthens in many aspects with long-term practice. Selective attention sharpens. The attentional blink diminishes. Sustained attention becomes easier and an alert readiness to respond increases. And long-term practitioners show enhanced ability to down-regulate the mind-wandering and self-obsessed thoughts of the default mode, as well as weakening connectivity with the no-circuits, signifying less self-preoccupation. These improvements also show up during meditative states generally become traits. Now, a state is something that is a, a circumstance, you're in a particular situation and you're perhaps in a state of calm. In a different situation, you might be in a state of excitement. Now, a trait is when you're in a variety of situations and you can remain calm, whether the situation is exciting or not. That's when it becomes a trait. Now, the attentional blink phenomena is what happens when two differing visual or auditory stimuli are presented with a gap of a fraction of a second. The second stimulus is ignored. So I talked about how the um, 
insular cortex's function is to read what's going on in the body, so to speak, and to become more and more sensitized through practice of mindfulness of breathing. That internal tracking is uh, more empowered, so to speak. That overcomes the attentional, uh, the blink phenomena. The fault mode network is what we all can encounter when we start to meditate. It's the mind wandering. There are certain circuits in the brain that are pretty much running all the time. Just a question of how tuned in your attention is to them or not. You're not going to get rid of the default mode network. What you're going to do is develop different networks. So it's sort of like you develop a, a, a better tuner in, in your attentional process that becomes more and more effective at tuning into a different channel, so to speak, a different frequency that's calmer and more peaceful and more stable. Uh, Samadhi Pasadhi. Um, so, um, the research regarding the default mode network and mindfulness strongly suggests that when people are very well trained in mindfulness, they're not so dominated by the default mode network. I still encounter it, but it's it's instead of it being perched on my shoulder, shouting in my ear, it's the other room with the door closed. Uh, my mind can wander in there and get caught up in it, but less and less vulnerable to that. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, so, um, in the Tibetan tradition, there's a practice called Tonglen. Now, for some reason, it's translated as sending and receiving. That doesn't make sense to me, so I've turned it around, receiving and sending. Think about what I was saying earlier. There's you know, your, your flow of experiences going on, and you become aware of incoming stimulus. Could be in your body, could be something you see or hear, right? So that's receiving. When it comes in, the mind can become afflicted by distress and confusion, craving and clinging, and uh, dukkha occurs. And you act out the dukkha, which distorts the empathetic response, right? So um, when you are uh, practicing Tonglen, what you do is you acknowledge what's being formed in the mind, but through the application of um, access concentration, samadhi pasadhi, or what in the Tibetan tradition is called relative bodhicitta. Bodhicitta means awakened mind. Uh, you're able to transform the emerging narrative, the emerging misinterpretation uh, or mis, uh, misapplication of empathy into compassionate thoughts and actions. So it's receiving and sending, receiving and sending. That's a really powerful practice. Well, here, here are some, this is in the notes, they'll be posted and you can refer to them um, and perhaps make notes for yourself with your practice. Um, so when I tell, to suggest to people that they practice loving kindness, I offer them a mantra. You can imagine this is a, um, a slight variation on the mantra. Here's some suggestions. Just as I have been hurt, so have you. May we both be free from pain. Just as I have experienced loss, so have you. May we both recover from loss. Just as I have experienced rejection, so have you. May we both experience loving acceptance. Just as I have experienced illness, so have you. May we both regain health. Just as I have, fill in the blank, so have you. May we both fill in the blank, right? So that's something that you can apply. But first you want to establish a quiet, stable state of mind. Mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation. 
Um, a dramatic impact of this, talk about traits. Um, a Tibetan monk was imprisoned and tortured by the Chinese when they overran Tibet. He was in prison for many years. And then they released him. And he went to uh, where the Dalai Lama is now lives in the, um, Nepal or someplace like that. Um, and started to practice. And he made a remarkable progress. And people wondered why. And the Dalai Lama said it's because he was practicing Tonglen while he was imprisoned. He was acknowledging that the, the, the people who were torturing him were deeply afflicted by dukkha. So he practiced being compassionate to his tormentors. And that significantly deepened his practice, his power, power of his practice. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do something that um, overwhelming, um, but um, these are some suggestions for the cultivation of um, karuna, compassion. So those are, that's what I have to say tonight, speaking from my notes. Now we now have the opportunity for people to ask questions or make observations about compassion. Anybody? Here in the room or uh, via Zoom. April? Uh, yeah, sure. I actually just want to say that um, that it was a very clear talk and I resonated with so much of it and that I I really enjoyed the weaving of the... I'm getting more familiar with the poly and the, all of the terms and terminology and then the weaving of that with the science. So... Um, yeah, thank you. It was really wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, teaching uh, meditation is an act of compassion. Think about that, right? Reading about it and practicing it. When you sit down to meditate, mindfulness of breathing, you are, at that moment, cultivating compassion. That very action. Every time... You're distracted and you go back to the breath. That is compassion in action. Other questions or comments? Julian. Thank you, Peter, for, for the talk, for sharing this with us. Um, I can comment on the compassion. I've noticed that, for example, the times I uh, more compassionate, not only empathetic, but compassionate is the times that um, my the sense of self of myself is is is, is lower. So if I'm horrid, and then I see someone that is um, in um, some kind of uh, situation that uh, is a suffering, but if I uh, I focus on myself. I'm more, I less able to really act compassionate. But when I'm the kind of self drops down, I'm more open, and and, and um, I've seen that uh, I'm more willing to to just to alleviate a bit or help a little bit. And also, I I I, I thank you because you mentioned that even though we are naturally empathetic. There is, there should be an intention to turn towards compassion. So there should be, uh, I, I will say, like this intention to to do, like, um, yeah, try just to be open to it, and also maybe if there is a situation, if the situation allows, allows that, um, then we can we can act compassionately. Yes. So when you were talking, Julian. Uh, part of what I was thinking about was uh, the self-absorption. And you were saying, you know, your, your sense of self-absorption diminishes when you're uh, compassionate. But think about it. When we're empathetic, 
part of us knows that could be me. And I don't want to look at that. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to think about it. So the empathy turns into numbness or, or um, a forced indifference and becomes more and more um, likely to produce selfishness and fear and preoccupation. So, um, because the basic principle uh, is uh, interdependence, we're all in this together. When we are aware of our empathy and we act compassionately in that regard, the sense of there being a boundary between my ego and the world is diminished. It's not reinforced. And I think that that's a very important insight to have about the practice of compassion. For example, as a psychotherapist, there's this phenomenon that's called countertransference in this clinical setting. What that means is that when somebody says something that touches on my unresolved personal issues, my history, the countertransference, I start to act in ways that are uh, defensive or uh, aggressive or somehow or other I'm acting out so I don't have to feel it. Um, this could happen not just in a clinical setting but it could happen in a work setting where a person who's a supervisor could be presented with an issue that is a really sore spot for him or her and rather than responding with compassion, could become harsh and, and punitive, um, overcritical, because of their own distress and confusion, right? So that tends to create a sense of isolation and uh, defensiveness. But when you can be aware, I'm witnessing suffering, and you decide to intentionally cultivate compassion, that starts to reduce that kind, that need to either defend or, or uh, gratify the ego. Does that make sense, William? Yes, it does. Okay. Allie? Yes. Um... I wanted to touch on something that you, you know, commented on right now and earlier uh, in the talk, which was, um, I, uh, so I, I had an experience yesterday um, where somebody was particularly harsh to me, um, and it really hurt my feelings, and I spent a lot of the day really processing it and just sitting with that emotion, um, but there came a point kind of towards the end of that processing last night where... I was, whatever hurt or confusion or distress I was experiencing just became superseded by compassion because it hit me, as you mentioned in the talk, um, for somebody to be so harsh like that is a, is just a consequence or a reflection of their own distress and confusion. And so my, my, like the, the kind of thought that came up was like, you know, it must be so hard to have so much rage or to have so much, you know, um, to, to be able to, you know, display that kind of cruelty must, must really demonstrate how much distress and confusion there actually is. And so to, to see it from that light, it immediately kind of, um, like it, the, whatever hurt I experienced was just immediately dissipated by compassion. So it was yeah. very kind of, um, yeah, your hurt was your hurt was ego defense, but the more you can see that this other person is distressed and confused and acting out on that, the less you need to defend an ego. You just right. it kind of dissolves that sense of separation. 
right? That's the practice. Other questions or comments before we uh, close it for the evening? I'm Will. Yes, Will? Um, yeah, I, I, I uh, appreciate this practice so much. And um, as you know, I continue to, to look and continue to uh, be aware um, through mindfulness and um, I, I, I see where my mind can go. I see how confused I can be, and I, and I understand the, um, the, 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 the feeling tone of that, and it's, it's not something that I want. You know, it's not, it's not pleasant. It's not, um, it's painful. It's, it's, it's suffering, right? It's, mm -hmm. uh, and it's, uh, and, and, and with that awareness, um, course uh i uh i can see it in others but you know there's a saying in um in recovery where if you spot it you got it and uh so so i think um the easiest place to spot it is typically on on the on the road while you're driving i think that's the easiest place to see <laughs> just like to to see how upset you get like for me like for that but that's one of the easiest places for me to practice compassion um, it, because, uh, you know, I see things that I don't like a lot, uh, while I drive, I see people doing things that I, that I don't like. And I, and I have to, I have to ask myself, like, when, when have I, um, been in a hurry or when have I been thoughtless? When have I been careless or when have I been selfish? And uh, it's quite often, you know, it's quite often. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I can't really, I have no control over their actions, but I can control the way I drive. And that's really the compassion, most compassionate act is to, is to uh, be a more thoughtful driver myself and then you know, when other people do it, that's, that, that's, or when other people aren't doing the same thing, it's, it's an, it's, it's another chance for, I, I, I guess it's easier for me to forgive them, is what it is, is, is what I've found, it, as long as I do my part, and, um, you know, it's, that's a good, uh, it, it, it's also a good checkpoint for me, or a, a good, uh, like, spot check for me, because, because if I, if I notice that I'm, I'm getting more irritable while I drive, I, it, it, it makes me realize, well, what's going on in my life? What am I doing that is, that's, that's causing my mind to be this way? And uh, so, yeah. So two things to say about that, and then we'll close it for the evening. One of them is, uh, and this kind of goes back to my conversation with Allie, when you connect with somebody else, you don't know what was going on for them before you contacted them, before you talked to them. You don't know. They may have been up to their ears in a, in a, you know, a hornet's nest of their own distress and confusion. And you just happen to walk into it. Not really about you, it's about them. And the other thing is the, the core of skillful means for cultivating compassion is the realization that there really isn't a self to be defended or gratified. We're, all that's going on is certain conditions. You know, the brain thinks and it functions in a certain kind of way. We're able to just, you know, explore that now with this uh, sophisticated technology and uh, other means and understand more about what goes on in the brain, but it's impersonal. You know, it's not who I am, it's the conditioning that is bubbling up under the right stimulation. To me, that is the most important tool to cultivate, to realize compassion. It's to not 
you know, uh, get all wrapped around, um, I've got to be right, or you poor person. It's more along the lines of, these are the circumstances. What can be done to alleviate distress and confusion? So, okay, so um, I think what I want to talk about next week, I'm not certain about this, but I think what I want to do is talk about mudita, which is another Pali word which is translated as sympathetic joy. I also like to think of it as, as generosity, a kind of generosity of spirit. So I think that that may be the topic for next week's discussion. All right, so uh, this is our custom. Let's sit for a moment. for your practice. I wish you well and I hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to talk. <laughs>